0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste play the harp.
1: Oh, how lovely. Yeah, nice, right? <laughs> Beautiful glissando. Yeah, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and I'll use any excuse I can to use the word glissando in casual conversation. Yeah,
0: that should be your new, like, pen name. Glissando
1: Jones. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's about a, a harp playing detective yeah. and who investigates malfeasance in orchestras around the world. He's he's not actually that good, but he's got a lot of pluck. Um Oh my god.
0: <laughs> yes, I am off to a great start tonight. Um, Yeah, this is Critically Acclaimed. We review new movies, and uh, (laughs) we got some this week. Terrible puns as well. Uh, So this week, we're reviewing the new releases, Radioactive, The Rental, and Yes, God, Yes. We're also on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, where we're catching up on older movies that one or both of us never saw. Uh, As voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we're reviewing the Oscar-winning Vietnam War film, The Deer Hunter, which for me was my go-to answer for many years when people said, hey, Bibbs, you're a critic. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen most of the big movies. What's like a really big movie you never got around to?
1: (laughs) And The Deer Hunter
0: was the film Mm. that I would pick for for many years. I actually had The Sound of Music, and then I saw The Sound of Music. And then The Deer Hunter was my go-to. So now I don't know what the biggest movie I've never seen is. I'm sure
1: there's something. Yeah, there's you know. plenty.
0: But, like, what's one that, like, people would be, like, shocked to know that I well, haven't seen it?
1: It's kind of hard to pull those, you know, off the top of your head. Sometimes right. it's just, you don't think about them a lot. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I haven't seen The Philadelphia Story yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, well,
0: I've seen The Philadelphia Story many times. But, like, mm. yeah, there's there's, listen... Every single person whether you're a professional film critic or just getting started you have gaps in your film history education and these gaps may relate to what was available to you growing up these gaps may relate to like where you are geographically some films are more readily available in certain parts of the world than others and sometimes it's just who has the time mm. even if you're unless you're like 120 years old it's inconceivable that you would have even had a chance to see every movie ever made, because a lot of them are lost. Yeah. Some of them are sort of nebulously available on home video, if available at all. And honestly, there's only so, much, so many movies you can fit into a day. And I managed to fit in like three or four on most days. So we're all catching up. Yeah, and so I get to catch up on the Deer Hunter, and I'm excited to talk yeah. to you about that film because I have thoughts. And uh, yeah, and we're going to be reviewing all those new movies as well. But unfortunately, before we get to that, we do have to talk about some sad news. We lost a couple of Hollywood legends this week. Uh, one of whom is one of the great Hollywood legends, and another one maybe you know their their passing was a little bit overshadowed uh, mm-hmm. by all the headlines taken up. Uh, but let's start with uh, the inimitable Olivia de Havilland, who died this week at the age of 104.
1: It was all that bike riding. Mm. Uh, there's a picture of her uh, last year at mm-hmm. age 103, riding a bike, yep. smiling, having a good time. T- took really good care of herself, apparently, and good for her. Yeah. Uh, Olivia de Havilland uh, is, well... A lot of people have said have said she's sort of like the the last living connection... We had to classic Hollywood. Um, Norman Lear's 105, mm-hmm. and he's still alive. Uh,
0: uh, Norman Lloyd is 105. Excuse
1: me, Norman Lloyd, not Okay, Norman I was about Lear. to say,
0: I thought Norman wasn't that old. but I apologize. Uh, Norman Lloyd.
1: Norman Lloyd, I yeah, misspoke. Who
0: was in films like Limelight and Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 105, still going. Uh, but in any case, yeah, we're starting to lose this direct connection to our past. And there's something that's really, really sad about that on top of the fact that someone has died. Mm. Um, That Olivia de Havilland is one of the last remaining uh, uh, people in the Golden Age of Hollywood feels oddly fitting because Olivia de Havilland gave a stiff upper finger to those people a long time. Upper finger? Middle finger.
1: Stiff upper finger. I don't
0: know what that one even refers to, but a stiff middle finger to the Hollywood system. Olivia de Havilland, in addition... To starring in classic movies like Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Snake Pit, The Heiress, uh, Gone with the Wind. That sure it's, that too. But it's only her best known role. It's her best known role, but let's and it, it, it is what it is. We'll talk about that another um, later. But in addition to all of that, she actually dealt like a killing strike to the Hollywood studio system back in the 1930s. Um Hollywood basically owned you if you were a big actor.
1: Yeah, you signed a contract with a studio and there was no way of getting out of it.
0: Yeah, they might loan you to another studio if they asked real nice or they offered someone in exchange. Like, ah, we can't get Bogart, but maybe if we give you Cary Grant, we can get Bogart. Like that Mm. kind of thing, which is this weird, almost sports-like way of treating art but draft day with actors uh, but what happened was Olivia de Havilland and and, and again I'm not a lawyer I might mess up the details of this but Olivia de Havilland was under a seven year contract and when seven years was up she wanted to do other things and the studio said whoa 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 yeah, it's been seven years, but you didn't work the whole seven years. Mm. To which Olivia de Havilland said, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> what, you expect me to, like, if, if I'm asleep, it doesn't count? Fuck you. So she took them to court. The court, to their credit, said, that's fucking stupid. Mm. And that completely, like, not completely, but that severely uh, uh, hindered the studio's ability to manipulate their actors. And they gave actors a lot more power to deal with studios because studios couldn't just... Treat them keep, like meat yeah, anymore Keep the actors Yeah, so that was a big, 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 big deal She's also very well known for her long-standing, lifelong feud with her sister Joan Fontaine <laughs> uh, They were both big actors They both won Academy Awards Olivia de Havilland won two uh, Joan Fontaine I think only won the one for Suspicion, right? Up oh, lightweight <laughs> Only one Oscar? <laughs> And I think she won in a year. Olivia de Havilland was nominated. Um, so extra double trouble. I think I made a TV series about it that Olivia de Havilland in her one hundreds was not happy about and sued <laughs> over because she's awesome. Um, yeah, she worked for a lot of that time. She worked for the vast majority of her, mm. like, lifetime. She was in some of the biggest
1: movies ever made, and she was really fucking talented to boot. Uh, she, and As I mentioned, her best-known role was probably playing Melanie in Gone with the Wind, and Melanie was sort of the innocent of that story mm. to serve as a counterpoint to Scarlett O'Hara's, you know... Haughty character. Yeah, Melanie was just uh, out
0: living her life, mm. marrying the guy she liked, and Scarlett O'Hara begrudged her marrying
1: the guy she liked because she also liked that guy mm. and just set about oh, destroying her. For, yeah, for no reason. For no and, particular reason. Just and Melanie w- was such a, a graceful, good person that mm-hmm. she was able to take it in stride. And mm-hmm. uh, I, for a long time, that's the way I saw Olivia de Havilland, was this, this sort of gentle soul. Then I saw Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. <laughs> I've actually never seen that. <laughs> <laughs> where, where she plays, like, a, a spiteful murderess. Yeah. And I began to realize the more and more of her work that I saw that that's her strength, mm-hmm. is playing, uh, like, hard-nosed, plucky badass. And I that's
0: guess. what she wanted to do. Like, her in her mm-hmm. early career, she was doing the ingenue thing. She did several films with Harold Flynn, like... Captain Blood, mm. and Adventures of Robin Hood, where she played Maid Marian. She's wonderful in those movies. Like, she's great. Mm. She, she does everything she, she needs to do in those. She, she don't take no shit in those movies. She kind of yeah. doesn't, but, you know, she's still kind of hindered by the fact that those were kind of macho movies and there was only so much she was allowed to do. She's really, really good in that Midsummer Night's Dream, which if you've never seen... The, I think it's 1936 version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. One of the best Shakespeare adaptations, period. Just period. It's gorgeous. You won't... Your, your mind will Some like kind of real...
1: special effects. Your mind yeah. will kind
0: of real at how good the visual effects were in a 1930s movie. Like, today we'd use CGI and maybe not even get that same effect. Mm. Like, it's really, really good. Um, I'm actually ashamed to admit there's several uh, uh, major uh, Olivia de Havilland films I never got around to. Uh, films like The Heiress...
1: Which, uh, for which she won an Oscar, awesome yeah, interview. and
0: films like The Snake Pit. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I always appreciated her work, and she worked so much. That, you know, I I, like, I miss the stuff. I'm a I'm a bad man. A, I feel how, bad. How dare but, you? Yeah. How dare you? But uh, I again, I was always astounded by her career. I Was astounded by her longevity. I was astounded by her ability to stand up for herself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, Olivia de Havilland or Joan Fontaine, the other one was the problem the whole time. So who knows who was right, if anyone, but, um, she didn't take shit from anybody and man, that's, I can't help but envy that. (laughs) Like, I just can't, like, I, I admire people who sue stick up for themselves Mm -hmm. and have like any sort of ground to stand on and Olivia de
1: Havilland. Uh, Was one of those people Olivia de Havilland is in a movie that I've been Trying to find for many years I I, Mm. I actually stopped looking after a while So I imagine if I tried again I'd find it But Mm. there's a, a It was considered lost for a long time But it's a 1972 film called Pope Joan, oh yeah, uh, which is about a legend about a woman who posed as a priest and eventually ascended to the level of Pope yeah. while disguising herself as a man. I actually don't know how true that is, and, but well, it's, 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 it's like a, apocryphal, it's apocryphal history. It's yeah. but the movie is, it's fact. Sort of like the movie yeah. Anonymous. We're just going to make up all this historical <laughs> crap. Take that, Roland Emmerich. Uh, <laughs> and it was directed by Michael
0: Anderson, who did uh, the Dam Busters and mm-hmm. Around the World in 80 Days, so kind of a big pedigree. Um, but yeah, I don't know. is it it like there were was, was released on DVD in 2003. So apparently mm. it, you you so can get around, it somewhere. But yeah. yeah, you need
1: to. We need. Franco Frank O'Neill in that. Crazy. Um, but it's 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 got this really bizarre framing structure where we're learning about Pope Joan via Assassin's Creed means. Like we're actually <laughs> we're in the modern day and we're like using hypnosis and machines to project somebody's like reincarnated soul back no. into the body of Pope Joan. No, uh, I think Pope Joan is played by Lee Woolman That sounds uh, amazing.
0: Yeah. Oh my god, how how Oh, we're getting this. <laughs> we are finding
1: this masterpiece. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what I can do. Um, yeah, the version of the film released in 1972, Different. Uh, just reading from Wikipedia, here, yeah. But yeah. Anderson's original was made with flashbacks and flash-forward sequence about moder- a modern-day evangelical preacher who believes her life parallels that of Pope Joan. Oh, my God. Yeah, so uh, it, it's one I've been looking for. Olivia de Havilland, it was one of the last films she made, and she plays mm. a, a nun in it, and it's just... It, if anybody has any line on Pope Joan, let me know, because that's that's a film I've always wanted yeah. to see. doesn't it look it's streaming
0: anywhere, but we'll yeah. have to look into it. And if
1: it's it. something Olivia de Havilland signed off on, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to give it a, a little bit more benefit of the doubt. Oh, man. Well,
0: um, in any case, uh, Olivia de Havilland, you'll be missed. Do you have a, Again, I said my favorite was Midsummer mm-hmm. Night's
1: Dream, and I stand by that, but I know that there are some I, big omissions. Please, please see Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. It was okay. made by Robert Aldrich. It was the one he made. Uh following uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. Uh it's very similar to whatever happened to Baby Jane. It also has Betty Davis in it, but like Betty Davis plays sort of a role similar to that of Joan Crawford in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Mm. Uh, she's not the abuser. Olivia De Havilland is the abuser in that one. Mm. And she is just this wonderful wicked villain ass in that movie. It's great. It's great. Okay. great. Well, awesome. Uh, if if anybody can tower over and intimidate Betty fucking Davis. <laughs> Well, that'll do it. Yeah. Uh, but also this week, and
0: again, everyone's been talking about Olivia de Havilland because, you know, again, golden age of Hollywood, you know, legendarily long-lived, legendarily talented, had all these incredible stories told about her and kind of overshadowed the fact that we also lost another legend this week. Mm. Uh, we lost John Saxon.
1: John Saxon, star of Mitchell.
0: Yes. <laughs> Any MST3K fan knows John Saxon from Mitchell, also know him as uh, the guy that bad guy from Cave Dwellers looks like.
1: Oh, yeah. Mighty John saxon John Saxon-looking guy. guy. John Saxon played uh, the cop or the detective in some late-night B-movie you saw on public television when you were a kid. There's a really excellent chance. Um, John Saxon was a really—I admire John Saxon. He
0: seemed like a, a, a man's man kind of actor in a way that didn't put me off. Like, yeah. he was tough, but he didn't have this, like, fake machismo. He just walked in, controlled the room, and walked out. Um, what would people... You probably knew John Saxon. Uh, oh, it turns out he was in the 1954
1: Star is Born as an usher. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> didn't know I that. Didn't say, we, just, uh, we just talked about yeah, that Yeah, that's film. funny. No, You're critically acclaimed. Episode. Not that you'd
0: recognize him. Um, but uh, he started off as, like, a teen actor. He was, like, uh, the guy dating Jimmy Stewart's daughter in Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. Which is a very sweet movie about a suburban family that goes on a vacation and everything goes wrong. Um I like okay. I like it it's fine, but it's not I, I it's not prime it. it's not prime John Saxon. My point is that he started young. And uh but then he would go on to I think a lot of people probably know him best nowadays, uh, for horror movies because mm. he ended up starring in or co starring like, in Black Christmas. Two iconic slasher movies, Black Christmas and uh Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. And he would go on to appear in Nightmare on Elm
1: Street three and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh where, so he's, uh, yeah where he play he played himself because of the nature of New Nightmare, he played himself, mm-hmm. but he also got to play his character from A Nightmare on Elm Street. In
0: a really it, great scene it, yeah. where you, should, you don't realize that he has switched roles midway through the scene. He starts off as John Saxon, and he ends as the dad from Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh-huh. It's a good bit of acting, actually. He's really, why really are you, great. Why are
1: you calling me John?
0: Um, but um, I, I think probably one of the biggest roles he ever had was Ender the Dragon. Mm. Uh, in which, uh, if you've never seen End of the Dragon, you should. It's one of the few films Bruce Lee starred in before his very untimely death. Uh, and it was the big American production where, oh, this Bruce Lee guy is amazing. We need to build a whole movie around him. And so they did. And they needed, like, a big ensemble cast of, like, big tough guys who go to this island fighting tournament. And the bad guy on the, on the island is, like, a real bad guy who's, like, doing bad guy stuff. And so we
1: got to stop that <laughs> bad guy with his cool Wolverine claw hand. Every, every like, kung fu-based video game from the 1980s is just a video game version of Enter the Dragon. Like,
0: Enter the Dragon and Master of the Flying Guillotine. Like, those are the only two movies that mm. anyone who made, like, a Mortal Kombat movie ever saw. Um, and including the makers of the game. Uh, but, so when they had, like, okay, Bruce Lee's going to this island. Who's going with him? We got Jim Kelly, who is a fucking badass, and I love Jim Kelly. huh. And then who else do we put on this martial arts tournament? John Saxon. Does he do martial arts? Not really. What happens when he fights a guy? Just kind of sucker punches him. That's it. He's just there to be John Saxon. He's there because he's kind of like the most recognizable American star in it. He's just there to be the white guy. More or less. But he he carries it well. He he doesn't like steal attention from any of the other stars. He's just there to be like, yeah, I've been seeing the
1: world a bit. I'll just punch that guy out and you go get him, Bruce Lee. And that's kind of a shtick. He's he's cool. Very professional. uh, Would happily star in schlock. I always admire Mm. actors who will just act in anything and give it their all. Uh, He played the villain the evil space villain who <laughs> stole people's organs and transplanted them into his body so he could stay alive in a movie called Battle Beyond the Stars, which was Roger Corman's sci-fi remake of The Seven Samurai. Yeah. Roger- it's as good as that sounds, by
0: the way. Yeah, Roger Corman did a sci-fi remake of Seven Samurai because George Lucas did a sci-fi remake of uh, Kira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress called Star Wars. So they just ripped off another Kurosawa
1: film. It is dumb. It's dumb, but, you know, it it's creative and it's mm-hmm. fun. It's got a lot of interesting visuals, they made up all kinds of interesting uh, aliens for it James Cameron worked on the special effects so it's better than I think people give it credit for it, it's
0: it's not. Listen, it's a very entertaining watchable movie yeah. I just <laughs> wouldn't call it good by any stretch. oh well I, I, it's, got a, fine, it's got a cheesy charm it's got a cheesy charm but you should totally go see it it's, uh,
1: because it's weird and fun Sybil and... Danning as an oh, Amazon gosh. warrior from space doesn't she have like the weird hat she has like a terrible she's got, hat she's got this gigantic headdress and like a chainmail bikini and nothing else oh my god beautiful love it <laughs> um, there's an, a space of aliens that communicate through temperature.
0: Oh, God. I forgot <laughs> about that. Weird idea. Um, I forgot about this, actually, because there's actually a few of the bigger Dario Argento films I haven't seen yet. Mm. Uh, it's John Saxon starred in Tenebrae, which I've been told oh, nice. is one of the good ones, but I've actually never gotten around to that mm. for whatever reason. There's like two or three of the big ones I never saw. There's Tenebrae and uh, I think Trauma. I never saw trauma. Um, But uh, I'd feel remiss if I didn't mention that he worked with Argento. Um, Did he? Wait, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he was in David Cronenberg's Fast Company. He was. David Cronenberg. That's right, he was. (laughs) David Cronenberg is best known as this, like, Mm. grimly psychological body horror director who makes movies about, like, physical mutations and deteriorating minds. He also did a race car movie.
1: (laughs) because I
0: guess he thought they were neat. And he did a movie called Fast Company, and I was super eager. This movie wasn't available for many years. And then they finally put it on DVD like 10, 15 years ago, and I couldn't wait. I was like, oh, I can't wait to see this car movie that David Cronenberg did. I bet it's really... (sighs) boring yeah, yeah <laughs> it's yeah, a it's really not, boring it's, it's movie. completely
1: forgettable film
0: it's more like it's he's like he's going for this terrence malick thing where it's like the car is life man or something but really doesn't seem mm. to be going anywhere with it
1: it's not really worth seeing <laughs> you know made another car movie uh, called <laughs> crash <laughs> uh, rec- my recommendation don't mix those two up <laughs> um but uh, in any case
0: john saxon was a fun fun actor Always a pleasure to see him on screen. I never saw him give, like, a bad performance, even when, like, very little was asked of him. No. He if was, I
1: yeah. He was in a film called The Bees. It was about bees. <laughs> it's got to be better than The Swarm, right? And it had John Carradine in it. Okay, it's got to be better than The
0: Swarm. Come on. Um, so anyway, if, uh, if you see any John Saxon movies, I recommend Black Christmas. I recommend Under the Dragon. Mm. I recommend Nightmare on Elm Street. Those are maybe the yeah. cliché answers, But there's a reason why. He did stand out in them, and he was really, really great yeah.
1: in those movies. Uh, be sure to get the DVD of Black Christmas, because I'm on it. Uh, you are? Well, well, I'm in... They did a live Q&A at the New Art, which was the theater where I oh, worked, yeah. uh, with John Saxon in person when we did a midnight oh, screening of Black Christmas. That's cool. And uh, and I'm on there. At, you can hear me asking questions from the audience. I wasn't I, hired to do anything. I'm just on it. That's fun. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's cool, man. I think I would like ask a question in one, w- one little bit. Of, you can, might see my shadow in the corner. That's still and, cool.
0: Um, that's one of those fun little like you know Easter egg kind of things where it's hmm. like ah before they were famous, kind of <laughs> before they were vaguely knowable. <laughs> that's <laughs> before that's where I'm we're famous. At. You mean now? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Anyway, uh, so uh, in any case John Saxon, you will be missed Olivia de Havilland, you Mm. will be missed We would both give our left ears to have the career That Mm. either of those two wonderful actors had Uh, So seriously, celebrate them See their movies Don't let them ever be forgotten
1: Uh, Yeah, and they both made dozens upon dozens of movies John Saxon actually made more movies than Olivia de Havilland Oh, he was very prolific That's because he would throw off two movies in a weekend Uh, Olivia de Havilland, though Maybe a, a higher contingent of like Hollywood, classics. You know,
0: she, she was part of the star system She was like, John mm. Saxon was a working actor for most of his career He really wasn't a leading man for a lot of it So Olivia de Havilland was a Hollywood superstar Back when that meant something And they reserved roles for that mm. And so I think she hung on to that sort of elevated status For pretty much her whole career And uh, with cause so mm. uh, In any case, uh, rest in peace, you'll be missed And now uh, we move on into the future of movies uh, with the movies that came out this week uh we only saw one movie uh together this mm. week like we only both saw
1: this one film the other films Whitney saw because i was busy and and i got to see the biggest film of the weekend and in fact the rental has a new has broken a new record oh it is the, it has the distinction of being the only film in history to be number 1 theatrically and on streaming simultaneously no shit yeah kind of
0: a Asterisk next to that, I think, but yeah, you, you know. put an asterisk, but that's yeah. that's
1: its its distinction. It was well, during yeah, it's well, during a pandemic. Well,
0: shit, I guess we got. I mm-hmm. was going to say the uh, there were other films that had a higher pedigree, but shit, I guess that's mm-hmm. the number one film of the week. Yeah, we got to talk about the rental first. I did not see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, this was directed by Dave Franco, Dave Franco, James Franco's younger brother, who mm-hmm. I'm actually quite a fan of.
1: He's mm-hmm. a very charming actor. He's a very charming actor. Uh, I, th- I think he and and his brother played off of each other very well in the Disaster Artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his first film as a director He wrote the screenplay with Joe Swanberg Who's like one of the big mumblecore guys Yeah And uh, And it stars his wife, Allison Brie And yeah, it stars his wife, Alison Brie It also stars uh, Sheila Vand Who was the girl who walks home alone at night Oh, well, that's a good pedigree uh, Yeah uh, Oh, it's got Dan Stevens in this When and, Yeah, and and yeah, the, the, maybe the most recognizable star is Dan Stevens, and Dan Stevens plays a scumbag, so we're, we're, we win. Yeah, Dan Stevens is one of those actors who is super duper handsome,
0: but he's a way better character actor than anything. So if you yeah. watch The Guest, or even that uh, Eurovision Song Contest, he steals half that movie. Yeah. like He's just great. I'm a fan. Yeah. I'm a fan <laughs> of it. Or as we like to call him, Damn. Damn Stevens. Damn. Stevens. Yeah. My, my
1: wife is currently going back and rewatching Legion, so just sort of... Oh, I he wa- was really good in that. ...wallowing in Dan Stevens' insanity. It's just wonderful. I never got around to that, but yeah. I heard it was really good. Yeah, it's, it's tangentially related to the X-Men universe. Yeah. Like, Legion is an X-Men character, but they are... Doing nothing to make this feel like a comic book movie. They're not making yeah. any allusions to the X Men universe.
0: Based on what I've heard, there's like a few X Men side characters who show up in that, but basically it's its own thing. Because in the mm. comics, Legion was Professor Xavier's
1: son. Yeah, and it's whatever. <laughs> so moving on, but uh, he he's really really wonderful. Um, this film is a slasher. Here's, a, here's what I think Dave Franco was getting at. He was trying mm. to make a slasher movie where the protagonists, instead of being sort of callow teenagers, are now callow adult characters. So uh, Dan Stevens, uh, his wife, Alison Brie, his uh, very close business partner, played by Sheila Vand, and his brother, mm-hmm. played by Jeremy Allen White, who is uh, dating Sheila Vand, all have decided that they're going to take a vacation, so they rent out sort of an Airbnb from a really suspect uh, racist dude played by Toby Huss. Oh, Huss loved, Toby Huss is great. I love Toby Huss. Toby Huss is really chameleonic. Like, I saw that whole movie and I didn't recognize him. <laughs> you might know um, him as
0: uh, uh, Artie, the most the strongest man in the world. Strongest the man
1: in the world, yeah.
0: From The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Also, mm. he plays creepy guys.
1: He plays creepy guys. Uh, he had a, a lounge career. He probably still has a lounge career, a yeah. like lounge singer career. Yeah. Uh, and they, they move into this big, really nice house that's very remote. They're miles from where anybody could hear them scream. And uh, every, they take some ecstasy. Three of the four of them take ecstasy. Alison Brie goes to bed. And some untoward things happen while they're on ecstasy. And there's maybe some... Uh, sexual things that people might want to keep secret and the next day they discover there might be some cameras planted around this house Ooh. and things are really, really creepy and they're not really sure what to do and what what to uh, keep on these cameras and <clears throat> what to hide and how are they going to find these cameras and everything's really awkward between them because there might have been some uh, sexual misgivings about certain things and I'm, I'm being vague because I just don't want to give away the details in case you want to see it. Uh, and then, and, and also, and also, there's a masked killer who shows up. Now, we're I was waiting for this thing to become smart. These are sort of <laughs> because this is filmed in a really subdued style. Dave Franco is really trying to tell kind of adult story from an adult perspective. Things aren't really uh, salacious and 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 exploitative. They're really sort of muted, and the characters are exploring adults. Uh, proclivities in sort of a a more sophisticated way. They're trying to discuss things a little bit more intelligently. They're not just sort of going for broke. Uh, So you're waiting for this thing to emerge with uh, a message or something to say. And unfortunately, I have to reveal this part. Nothing comes up. They just sort of let it take its course as a mindless slasher film. Okay. So it never, it never, it never overcomes that. You're expecting it to become something a little bit more sophisticated and it never does. And in fact, in becoming not in becoming something really kind of dumb and cheap, you realize, wait a minute, this film's a piece of shit. Oh no! <laughs> it, it doesn't really because so it started
0: off like maybe you think maybe it's going
1: to be really you th- you great. Think and you think it might just- you think it might be about something here, and then it just is not about anything. And I started to I was so frustrated by the the ending of this movie. Yeah. That I I actually had to look up like interviews with Dave Franco like when he was promoting the movie, and as it turns out, it's just about the fear <laughs> of the B and B. If you well, ever rented an Airbnb. Yeah somebody li- somebody was in that room before you.
0: I mean that's an okay like, starting place but you got to go somewhere with it. Yeah. You know, like you're in a you're in a stranger's house.
1: That's yeah. weird. You but know. It's, it's not even you're in a stranger's house it's just sort of like, who was in this motel room before me? Well, yeah, a lot of people, and weird stuff went in that motel room. But you don't think about that, because you're just there to sleep. Well, I mean, there are haunted hotel movies. No. Yeah.
0: The Shining, 1408, you know, there, you can do that. Yeah. But you have to go somewhere with that. That's that's the baseline mm. start. It sounds but like they not, got to the basic idea, and then they just it, assumed the that we re- carry
1: it. In the rental, they never revealed, like, that something horrendous had happened in that house beforehand. It didn't have that haunted element to it. Oh, God. It's just a rental and it's about being uh, an uptight adult who's just sort of freaked out by the fact that somebody else was in a house that you're renting. That's not really a very universal fear. I mean, look, I, uh, you know, people, I'll let's, let's say this, people, here's the deal. <laughs> when we have
0: new developments, sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's new social systems. Mm. Horror is usually really quick to jump on the anxiety because we're scared of new things. Mm. So it's, it's like uh, there's a joke in the Zombieland sequel where it's all taking place in this like alternate history now because the zombie apocalypse was like 10 years ago. Hmm. So the last 10 years of history that we know didn't happen. So well, things like Uber and Lyft never happened in the Zombieland universe. Right. So they run into someone who said they had an idea for an app like Uber where you... Press put your name in an app, and then a stranger comes up in their car and picks you up. And everyone, understandably, says that's a stupid idea. Who knows who that person is? It's just basically a serial killer buffet. Mm. And that's a fair—that's a
1: fair you know paranoia what? about that, isn't it? And you know what? There's a horror movie on Quibi right now. Yeah, <laughs> called The Stranger. Which is about that very thing. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's not, not a bad da- setup.
1: Dane DeHaan and Michael Monroe. That's not a bad setup for a horror movie. Yeah. You know, when we started
0: having cameras on our phones, we started getting this preponderance of found footage horror movies mm. because everyone was filming themselves do everything. And no. so the idea of that footage containing something creepy was in our heads when mm. TVs were starting to become a thing. We had horror movies about TVs. So go see the Twonky sometime. <laughs> it's a delight. Or <laughs> a guy gets a TV uh, from the future so, that's trying to brainwash everybody
1: but the, the point is the point here is Airbnb has been around long enough and they've already been exposed for you know the charlatans they are yeah that making a film about sort of exploring it for the first time and finding some cracks in the system seems like maybe f- four or five years out of date already? That's true.
0: It's not good enough for a gimmick, but I can see the point with a lot of people have done it by now. We might be able to key into some universal anxiety we have about it, but it sounds like they didn't do a
1: good job. No, they didn't do a good job. I was reminded of of the Lazarus effect.
0: Oh, why? Why would you be reminded of that? That's not good. The
1: Lazarus Lazarus Effect is a a, a really crappy movie about Olivia Wilde dies and they bring her back from the dead. She's got the stink of evil around her brain and she kills people with psychic powers. It's an
0: attempt to do Frankenstein, but Frankenstein brought Mm. something back from hell and Mm. it's not good. Yeah, it's not
1: not good. But the curious thing about the Lazarus Effect is that it was... Directed by the director of Jiro Dreams of Sushi, yeah, which is like a, a wonderful a well, documentary, a about sushi. Docu- documentary filmmaker, and it was—I think it was written by um, uh, uh, one of the Duplasses, uh, who's also uh, in it. I'm, or, uh, no, I think no,
0: Mark Duplass is in it, but it was, it. It was okay. written by so, uh, Luke Dawson and Jeremy Slater. So oh, uh, right. well, Jeremy Slater ended up working on the TV series version of The Exorcist, which he created. So that's kind of a good pedigree. But he, wasn't, he didn't have that pedigree yet. Yeah. But yeah, Mark Duplass is in it. Olivia, Olivia Wilde is in it. Mm. Donald, Glover Donald Glover is in yeah. it.
1: So Donald, mm. Donald Glover, Olivia Wilde, Mark Duplass, and the director of Geodreams of Sushi got together and made like a shitty mid-budget horror movie. Yeah. It's like, that. that's a weird place for something so mediocre to come from. Yeah. And I feel the same way about The Rental. It's like, oh, Dave Franco, he's going to direct for the first time. Surely he has some strange ideas if he wants to get into directing. And he's going to write it with a, a mumblecore guy. And they're going to get an interesting cast. And, you know, Dan yeah. Stevens is going to play potentially a maniac. Okay, this is great. And they make a really rote, completely mediocre slasher movie. Well, that's nice. It's kind of bizarre. And... And my wife complained about this. Dan Stevens has a scene where he gets into a hot tub. Mm-hmm. He has a scene. There's a sex scene. There's mm-hmm. a scene where he gets into a shower. I'm with you. We do not see him without his shirt once. What? They angle the camera in such a way that we never see Dan Stevens' body. Now Dan, that's a crime. Dan Stevens yes. knows what kind of a body he has. Yes. And filmmakers are often game to film it yeah, again because again, it's a beautiful thing to look at there's a
0: scene in the guest where he's in a bathroom and someone knocks on the bathroom because they got to yeah. get in the bathroom he opens he, the door there's a blast of fog there's a blast of fog like it's like a cartoon like blast sound effect oh. and he comes out and he's just wearing a towel around his waist mm. kind of hanging a little bit and it's just his chest and he's and,
1: slick with sweat yeah yeah
0: and it's just like everyone in a theater have you ever had a chance to see the movie in a theater just went regardless of where you're at, just went, <laughs> Oh, Oh. whoa, they they knew what they were doing with Dan Stevens, which is why I always thought it was weird when they made him the beast in Beauty and the Beast. Like, you're going to cover him up? He's one of the most handsome men in the world. He's a great actor. And I actually, again, I'm not, I don't mean to just ogle him for fun because movies ogle him. He's just one of those actors that the camera loves. We just talked
1: about Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah,
0: exactly. The, The camera loves him and people like shooting him. So it's weird when you're doing a slasher and you're going to pull back.
1: Yeah, a sl- especially a slasher that involves some sexual activity. Yeah. And, like, it that's the sort of the, the metier of a lot of slasher films, where we're here to see a lot of exploitation, we're here to see a lot of violence, and we're also here to see a lot of sex. So there's uh, frequently scenes of young people having sex and then getting murdered. And uh, you're trying to make an adult version of that thing. Why not make it a little bit lascivious? It's frustrating that there's no lasciviousness in this movie. I want it to be either way trashier or actually about something. And the rental is neither of those things. The rental is just sort of flops down in front of you. It ran out of ideas. It stops way too quickly. And you're just sort of unimpressed with this limp corpse in front of you. Yeah. It's bad. (laughs) Well, that sounds... You know what? And it's number one. I'm glad glad people are passionate about something, but, you know, I I wish just they were passionate about better movies. Mm. Well, uh, you know what's a better movie? Hmm. I
0: assume, since I haven't seen this and you're (laughs) saying it's not very good. Uh, Radioactive. Mm. Radioactive is a new film from director Marjan Satrapi. Uh, If you don't know her name, you might know her as the woman who did the graphic novel Persepolis, which is all about uh, her upbringing. Uh, She also directed the movie version of Persepolis, which Mm -hmm. is nominated for an Academy Award. She also directed one of my favorite horror movies, a film called The Voices, starring Ryan Reynolds as a serial killer whose pets talk to him, and it's funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also intensely sad, and I think it's one of the more interesting and um, sort of understanding films about Mm -hmm. mental illness that I've
1: seen in the horror genre. Um, I didn't see her film, uh, uh, was it Chicken with Plums? Uh, she did a couple Ch- films Ch- I haven't Ch- seen Chicken actually. Plums, yeah. yeah. She did, did a film called Chicken with Plums, which uh, I wanted to see.
0: Yeah, and that, was I think, was based on one of her comics as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's got a new film. It's actually based on a comic book, but uh, a comic book by Lauren Redness, who does nonfiction comics. And she's done. Uh, she did one about uh, the Ziegfeld Follies, and she did this one. Uh, That is about Marie Curie and Pierre Curie, Mm. uh, who together discovered the elements polonium and radium and indirectly, well actually kind of directly, ushered in the nuclear age in which, well, a lot of technologies were suddenly possible, including
1: x-rays, chemotherapy, and of course the atomic bomb. And uh, the approach to this film is to flash back and forth rather frequently between the life of Marie Curie. Her struggles to be taken seriously as a scientist, because nobody listens to her because she's a woman. Yep. Uh, How she is trying to... Come out from under the shadow of her Husband whom she is vastly superior To anyway uh-huh. And who, like he's, he's still a brilliant scientist yeah. And not, who
0: to his credit yeah. is very supportive of her mm. And doesn't try to take the credit for the stuff That, he, that they do mm. together But inevitably he does In fact when they were she, was, she won two Nobel Prizes A feat that I think has only been done one other time in history mm. At least for uh, two different uh, mm. Fields of science but and, they, but they initially like, they tried to give it just to her husband and he was like no this was all her you yeah. got
1: to give her one too and so they did uh, but she wasn't but, allowed to speak <laughs> fuckers awful. And, and Rosamund Pike plays Mary Curie and, and she, she nobody plays oh fuck you better than Rosamund Pike <laughs> you, she just, it's like it's just all in her face like oh she, like she, she was Gone Girl remember yeah and, and so, uh, one of the best
0: performances of the last decade and it shocks me that after Gone no, Girl. Where was, who, you should have been knocking down her door with the best possible scripts. Yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Every
1: fucking, everyone in fucking yeah, no. Hollywood failed Rosamund Pike. Well, but this, this, this might be the first stab at that. Cause this is like a big prestige picture. She was yeah. a real person. This is like, it just Os- too long. This is like an Oscar bait kind of movie yeah. for Rosamund Pike. Uh, yeah. But the structure of the movie is we see all, all of the uh, bi- biographical stuff, and then we flash forward to kind of the consequences of her scientific discoveries. Mm-hmm. And I love that they put everything into context for you that way, yeah. rather than just sort of having a post-film and her discoveries, like, like a, yeah. a post-film Chiron, where they just explain oh, I hate all, all of her discoveries. Or, or worse, actually, you have someone
0: in the story who is like preternaturally able to predict the future, like, um, mm. what was that Willem Dafoe movie where he played Van Gogh, um... Attorneys' Gate, Gate. Where there's a scene in that movie. That's a great movie, except for this one bit where Mads Mickelson comes to uh, Vincent Van Gogh, and he's yeah. like at a, at a mental institution, and uh, he's like, "Why do you? Everything you paint is bad and upsetting, and I don't like it. Mm. Why do you think God gave you the talent to paint terrible things? A, that's a he's got bad taste, but B." Vincent van Gogh goes on a speech about how maybe in a hundred years this will be brilliant and people will look at me in
1: museums and I'm just That's, like, fuck you, come on. It's a, it's a dreamy enough film. I'm willing to forgive it in that case. My point is, uh, is that it, it just I takes think, you out of it. It's will, fake. Willem Dafoe is wonderful, even though I think it was twice Van Gogh's age. He was. Right <laughs> like Van Gogh died well before <laughs> <Yeah>. Vol- <laughs> Willem Dafoe's. He led the hard life, Van Gogh, I guess. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, I, I appreciate that they actually dramatized the consequences of, of some of these things because, yeah. uh, a lot of her, uh, a lot of what she discovered led to very bad things, like atomic bombs and like the Chernobyl disaster, and her own yeah. death. Like yeah, she, and, and discovering she, radium without any sort of
0: protection because mm. they didn't know how dangerous it was yet led to her. I mean, she, she lived longer than her husband, but he mm. he died. He was sick, and then he got hit by a carriage.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so he died just
0: r- randomly, and then she he died twice, and then she 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 died too young, older but mm. too young. Uh, of disease uh, related to exposure to radiation, she coined the term radioactivity. Mm. Um, but I think it's actually a very fitting name for it because, as you said, it talks about the lingering effects. It talks about um, you know sort of the ripples that she created and how everything was sort of tainted by it. But also, yeah, there are people who don't have cancer now because of what she had, because mm. of what she found and invented. You know, she, she was responsible for, like, building, like, portable x-ray machines that can be used in, at, at wartime.
1: And so people didn't have to constantly lose limbs just, no. just in case. Well, what I appreciate about this is it's about a, a female scientist. It's directed by a woman. And uh, I think they're deliberately eschewing something that goes along with a lot of uh, biographies that are typically about men and directed mm. by men in that there's a lot of ambivalence now. Uh, In Marie Curie's life She was very proud of her Discoveries Mm -hmm. She was very resolute in her beliefs She was able to speak up for herself And she also understood that some bad things are happening And she witnessed a lot of bad things happening Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have that sort of Great man quality Yeah you know the 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 hero of history sort of quality, even yeah. though she she is most certainly an important historical figure. Yeah, but there's, why we're making a movie about her?
0: But, but it led to both good
1: and and it, horror. It led to good good things and horrific things, and I'm glad that uh, Marjan Satrapi was able to put that ambivalence in her life. Yeah, and Rosamund Pike was able to enact that because it it allows us to see a broader scope of history and really appreciate her importance and how much she affected history mm-hmm. rather than focus on the grandiosity of the man. You know, I was I was watching this movie and I
0: was asking myself, in some respects, this is a conventional biopic. You know, it's hitting a lot of the beats. It's pretty
1: straightforward. It's, Other than yeah. that structure. Other than straight that structure, yeah. it's relatively
0: straightforward in terms of it, we're hitting the major bullet points of her life. And we're getting through it. And I think, ultimately, that's the one thing in the film that keeps it from being capital G great, mm. is that it, it does just have this sort of book report kind of formula to it. However, it's not so much what is being conveyed, but how it is being conveyed. And I think Marjan Satrapi is a really perfect director for this material, because she isn't just... Telling you the story, she is illustrating it for you. And this is an incredibly beautifully photographed movie. Uh, the uh, cinematographer is Anthony Dodd Mantle, who's worked a lot oh, yeah, uh, yeah. with, uh, probably most famously, with Danny Boyle. Hmm. Um, and Anthony Dodd Mantle doesn't seem restrained hmm. in his photography. He's very willing to push things in terms of focal depth, color timing. Um, he, he's working with Marjan Satrapi, who I think is a very empathic. Filmmaker and isn't afraid to empathize with people who we won't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. Um, You really feel like, yeah, okay, I'm getting the gist of what happened in her life, but I'm also getting a really great sense of what it felt like at the time Mm -hmm. in terms of Mm -hmm. the emotional engagement, but also just the sort of general vibe. Like there's this really wonderful bit where um, Pierre Curie gets really interested in spiritualism. And indeed, there you know, spiritualism is, uh, you know, nowadays it's not as much of a thing, but a hundred years ago or more, um, it was considered a pseudoscience in which people, mostly women, uh, would say, I can contact the dead. Mm. Um, it was pretty much universally debunked. But the, it was a way in, for women to gain their agency. It was a way for women to uh, work. It was a way for women to be creative. And indeed, a lot of the things that the spiritualists at the time were doing in order to prove that they could you know, release ectoplasm and all these things were actually these really kind of brilliant innovations in magic and con artistry. Um, and I think it's interesting that they sort of create a parallel here. but there's a level of mysticism to that, that I think Marjan Zatrapi is able to capture. She's not just showing you. And then they went to this mystic like, no, it's going to seem spooky. It's going to capture what Pierre Curie thought was so fascinating about this. Rosamund Pike is the whole movie, but I will say this. Sam Riley is really great in this. He plays Pierre Curie. Mm. He's usually, I find plays a younger, handsomer kind of character. You might remember him from pride and prejudice and zombies or the Maleficent movies. He plays Mm. the Raven. Um, here he plays an older gentleman. He is going toe-to-toe with Rosamond Pike. She is his superior in every way, but you can believe their relationship. Mm. He's really wonderful in this. Um, Yeah, gorgeously photographed. I love the sort but, of uh, think... bizarre visual flourishes that they mm. use to sort of, uh, uh, you know, bring you into the world and also establish, you know, interesting things. Like there's a whole bit where, oh, we invented radium. Great. Now we have radium chewing gum. they would just show weird close-ups of things and be like oh that's probably not good (laughs) it's either bullshit or really bad or both Mm. (laughs) so Uh,
1: I actually wrote a a report once on like one of the world's most dangerous toys and Mm. it was uh, a a science kit you could buy in the 1950s oh. and it had a, a little radioactive isotope in it that you could experiment Oh my with. god can you imagine <laughs> like a little what little a chunk horrible. of radioactive metal i think terrible I
0: think. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. we knew by then we knew it wasn't good for you by then it's yeah, yeah, horrifying. <laughs> Jesus Christ! And you see her like she's got like this little bit of radium that she keeps with her. It's just like I discovered this, and they're sleeping with it at night. And then you just hear the, not? <coughs> <coughs> like, oh, damn it! <laughs> so fucked up. Hmm.
1: Um, I, I, there are some awkward bits. A, a lot of the the straightforward biographical stuff is actually kind of. It's not just cliché. It's kind of stodgy. It's a little. Uh, clunk. That's like, my point. That's the thing that's holding the, the, it back. The, the, yeah. the, the courtship between the Curies is is just so awkward. It's, it, it it's feels fine, really but it's pretty.
0: It's it's fast. It mm. doesn't quite sell, but the actors are good, so I mostly buy All it. Right. But yeah, like that's my thing. Whenever it's trying to be a straightforward biopic, it's just okay. It's mm. a little didactic. It's not amazing, but. Um, in any case, the the performances are excellent. It's gorgeous to look at. The score is fantastic. Marjan Satrapi finds. I think. I, I think it's all in the telling. I think this is a boring script if almost anyone else makes this. But I think Marjan Satrapi is a really uh, uh, beautiful filmmaker in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and she's got a good team here. And I think this elevates Radioactive from. Good to great, but not capital G. I will always remember this movie great, but Mm. I would definitely recommend this to anybody because everything in it is good. It's just only some of it is great. Yeah. All right. Um, But yeah, seriously, go seek it out. It's on Amazon Prime and it's free if you already have a subscription. So you don't have a lot of excuses.
1: Um, And then uh, lastly, you saw Yes, God, Yes. I saw Yes, God, Yes. Yes, God, Yes is a little uh, indie film directed by Karen Main. It's her first film. And it uh, it stars Natalia Dyer, who is in Stranger Things. Okay. Uh, and she plays a teenage girl who is uh, going to a really strict uh, Catholic church in uh, the early 2000s. Hmm. And her biggest sin is that she watched the movie Titanic and got really turned on. Because there's some sexy stuff in Titanic. Okay. And uh, so she and uh, one one day she is in a, an AOL chat room and things get kind of unexpectedly sexy. She just some people start coming on to her and she doesn't really know what to do with that because all she's being taught in her very strict Catholic school about the human body is that lust is bad. Yeah. You're not to feel it and you're never supposed to act on it. And she as such, she is woefully uninformed when it comes to anything regarding sexuality. Yeah. Uh, At the same time, because everyone is so uninformed, rumors are flying like crazy and somehow she's accumulated this reputation as being like the school's hussy. Even though she has no idea what sex really is, yeah. uh, and she keeps be- getting accused of tossing a salad, and she doesn't know what that means. <laughs> and every time she asks someone, they give her a different answer because nobody knows <laughs> what this thing means. And uh, what this film really kind of nails is: I'm not sure if, if uh, you, uh, you William, went to any kind of like Christian camps. No, nah, not
0: uh, really.
1: Yeah, but if if any of you dear listeners went away to like Christian youth camps. This nails the feeling of what it's like to be at a Christian youth camp. Uh, this idea of sharing and warmth and being in God's love, uh, and all of the pressures that that sort of thing, those sorts of things bring. But I'm I'm not Roman Catholic. I you know, belong to a rather bland Protestant church, but uh, the yeah, the, this sort of uh, camp where these uh, young teenagers are now kind of free to. You know, or should be free to sort of express their sexuality a little bit more openly or maybe go to adults about this and are being constantly discouraged to explore their sexuality and the frustrations that brings to our young protagonist. Uh, and what I appreciate about this movie is it's structured a lot like sort of a horndog teen comedy, mm-hmm. you know, like your American pies but it's really actually kind of sweet and sensitive about it mm. we understand that there is a lot of sexual frustration mm. and there is uh this weird free floating lust and you know this need to talk about sex and these urges to masturbate uh but presents it with a very humane eye uh it's it's never uh presented in sort of a gross out sort of way it's played for laughs but it's never uh, to humiliate the protagonist. Okay. Uh, which I really, really Which appreciate. makes it not like yeah.
0: American Pie at all,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, the American Pie, the young boys masturbate specifically so they can be humiliated. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And, and your dad is going to walk in and you're going to have a pie on your crotch. You yeah. know, it's n- not that sort of thing. Even though there is a scene where somebody walks in on her uh, masturbating. Right. And it's played for laughs. But again, it's not to humiliate her. Right. Uh, there's also a scene where... Uh, the protagonist sneak sneaks off of the, the camp and sneaks over to a bar. She's like 17 years old. She sneaks into a bar and she gets a wine cooler and they serve her anyway. And she turns to the woman next to her. And the woman is a lesbian in her late forties and the two, the conversation that ensues between the two of them, it's very brief, but it's so my jam. <laughs> it's like this young woman and this older lesbian kind of bonding in this dive bar over a wine cooler. It's like, I want the whole movie just to be that conversation. Aww. I want just like a still, sh- like a, a theater project where they just have a long conversation where they just get to confess their frustrations to one another and help each other. And uh, unfortunately, it's just a small part of the movie, but it—I just my heart was singing through that one one portion. So, is it more of a coming of age story or more of a comedy? I can't it's, quite it's tell. It's more of a coming of age story. Okay. But is it uh, just
0: me, or has there been a lot of pretty darn good coming of age stories this year?
1: There have been a, a lot of good coming, a lot of good lesbian coming of age stories. Because yeah. there was uh, the half of it, mm-hmm. on, was oh, which one. was on Netflix. That one was yeah. really good. I, I saw a film called To the Stars, which I really, really yep. loved. Um, this is coming. This the film was last year, but of course, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I don't know if that's uh, well, not really, really coming. coming it. That's it's not more coming They're more for straight up just, romance. Just romance. But uh, but there've been a few. Yeah, there've uh, been a few. And this is nice in terms of young men. Uh, I really liked that film, Big Time Adolescence, uh, more than I liked The King of Staten Island. I, you you liked it more a lot than of I did.
0: Similarities. You liked it more than I did. But yeah,
1: fair enough. And now we have Yes God Yes, and uh, and yeah, it's it's a, a very sweet, very brief, a, a bit of a trifle, but you know. Will will warm your heart. Well, you know we, we we
0: we're a little hard sometimes. I think on trifles mm. uh, because yeah, maybe maybe they won't linger on in our heads for forever. But sometimes they're exactly the movie you need. <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't always need to be like thrown over a cliff emotionally or anything. Sometimes we just need something like a sort of a gentle mm. reminder. About periods in our lives or Man. the difficulties of growing up. And we don't need it to be super intense all the time
1: to convey that. And I I, I try to be cognizant of that. I think sometimes we we just we, we, dis- we are guilty as critics of dismissing films that are very dear to people and yeah. because we're not seeing what some people are uh, right, there, right. there are some uh deeply beloved classics that I don't give a shit about Same. and I'll say it out loud to you know in in public spheres and get a lot of grief for it and but it we it is also our job to stick up for movies that mm-hmm.
0: nobody else really went for that we think have the power to really connect to people and maybe didn't find that audience mm-hmm. and I think that's something that I'm always concerned about. you know something I was thinking about like how I'm like Sometimes it's easy to dismiss a new movie because it's just sort of fine, but we've seen a lot of films like it lately. Mm. That's not the movie's fault. And in a year or two, when there weren't just four or five slashers just like it or rom-coms in a similar vein, Mm. and people aren't sick and tired because they've seen all five of them lately, Mm. that movie will just exist in a vacuum and be good. Yeah. So I try to keep it all in perspective. So I'm not going to dismiss something
1: just because it's a trifle. It sounds really good. I hope I get to see it at some point. It sounds really nice. Yeah, it's, it's a really yeah. sweet film. If, if you are the product of Catholic schools, I imagine this will hit you a little harder. There you go. Um, so uh,
0: that is it for the new releases this week. Bit of a light week for us, but uh, we saw some good movies. So uh, on the critically acclaimed scale of C minus to C plus, mm. where C is an average motion picture. Most movies are average. C minus is below average. Everything from eh, it's just not that good to it's fucking terrible. And C plus is above average. Everything from we genuinely recommend it to the best movie ever made. Uh, where do you put yes god yes? Yes god yes is a
1: C. Okay, not not a, a not a particularly passionate C, but a higher than average C.
0: Okay, so yeah. okay. Uh, uh, radioactive. I give a big C plus. Okay. Uh maybe not one of the best films of the year, but I think it's one of the best told films I've seen so far this mm-hmm. year. Sure. Where the story itself is somewhat of a conventional biopic, but it's so wonderfully presented, I think it mostly overcomes mm-hmm. that. And uh, I would recommend it to mm-hmm. anybody. I think it's a yeah, really yeah. nicely made film.
1: I well, I think there, that's also another way of saying Marjon's trophy is is dressing up something that uh requires dressing up to be interesting but she did um, it so yeah. so it is interesting so it's. Yeah, I, I, I can only complain so much i do recommend it i, I give it a high c i'm not as passionate about it as you are but okay. i i did i did like it and i did like some of the the novel ideas that satrapi brought to it okay and uh and lastly uh the oh. rental uh that's a big goose egg oh, that's, a that's, a shame. A, that's a c minus are there any
0: songs in it by the rentals
1: no that's a shame it's not quite that clever <laughs> that's not that clever, so that's not encouraging.
0: If you know what I'm talking about, there is a Weezer like spin-off band called The Rentals that had three albums, two good ones. Um <laughs> The first two Rentals albums are actually like chef's kiss, like really great pop, like alt rock albums Mm. uh and the third one's kind of overproduced and not very interesting but uh seriously the first rentals albums are great i just glad i get to talk about the rentals for a second i like that band (laughs) um okay so uh those are the new releases of this week uh on the critically acclaimed streaming club we decided to look at the new streaming service peacock which is the nbc universal streaming service they have a lot of material on there uh, a lot of their nbc shows a lot of universal movies and i will give peacock credit for this um it's free a lot of it is free there is a paywall for some of their content, mm. but a lot of it is free with commercials, and I mean a lot. Like, I was concerned when I was like, oh, some of it's free, maybe, like, a third of it and not the good stuff. A lot of the good stuff. A lot of the good stuff Like, the free. bigger yeah. movies, the classic movies. You can see, like, All the most,
1: universal monster movies. Not all,
0: there. but most. All right, well, most. Some of the deeper cuts aren't on there, but yeah, most of the big ones are on there. and The, like, the
1: well-known monsters, all of their movies are on there. Yeah, them. yeah, that's
0: pretty damn good and i think most of them were free or with with commercials and that's a that's a good service like mm. kudos to them for that like I, I don't know if like everything behind a paywall is so exciting that like i need to pay for it but i will gladly watch some of their commercials
1: sometimes because yeah. that's a pretty good library that's and uh, i i'm not at all familiar with any of the original stuff on peacock oh all, no. all of the streaming services have you know at least a few originals to their name just yeah. to sort of justify their existence yeah um I yeah I don't know like the shows or the movies that they're premiering on Peacock. Well, I think well, some we'll of them. will keep were, an eye out. but well, like
0: there was there was like a TV movie like sequel to Psych, uh, yeah. which someone pointed out. I, I actually need oh, to see so this thing. Weird. Yeah. Okay, so there was there is someone pointed this out online. There is a there's a Psych Two. I think it's called a Psych Two. Lassie, come home, or mm. something like that. Um, there is a scene that someone posted on our Facebook page from that movie. In which the characters from Psych, like one of them was like a, a, a fake psychic and they solved mysteries together. Mm. Um, and we, we've seen a little bit of It's a Fun Show. Uh, they're having like a video call, like a FaceTime call on their phone with somebody. I think they're a mortician. And they're just talking on the phone, talking on the phone, talking on the phone. Luca, get it. get down from there. Sorry, the cat's over there just putting stuff down. No, that's not me doing it. That's the character in Psych too. In the Psych movie, so there's somebody yells at their cat named Luca. In the middle of the conversation to get off of a thing like it's like exactly what we frequently have to do with Luca, who's actually very well behaved tonight. He's sleeping on the couch. Oh, sweet. He's adorable. Um, so anyway, we don't know if the people who uh anyone who works on Psych is listens to the show (laughs) or if that's just a huge coincidence because that's a very specific name for a cat that's causing trouble off camera yeah Yeah, that's that's kind of weird if you're behind if you're a fan of the show if you're listening to the show and you either know someone who works on psych or if you're one of the people who put that in psych tweet us Hmm. (laughs) let us know we would love to know if not weird coincidence and we'll happily just enjoy it um in any case Peacock. Peacock is a new service, and it seems like a pretty decent one, and so we decided to look up a lot of their classic movies and pick a classic movie that one or both of us hadn't seen, and our patrons selected, as they do every week, at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, which of these older movies that we would get around to, and you selected The Deer Hunter,
1: which has a little less hunting than I thought it would have. The Deer Hunter is the film that won Best Picture in 1978. Um and I was always really a little bit resentful of this movie before I saw it, because uh, I was born in 1978, and I was uh, expected uh, the film that won Best Picture the year of my birth to be something, I don't know, more grand, something with a little bit more cultural traction. It's not The Godfather. I no. missed The Godfather by a couple of years, yeah. or The Godfather Part Two, for that matter. Yeah. It's The Deer Hunter. Now, The Deer Hunter is highly acclaimed. Yes. Uh, it's It's well respected, but... It seemed a little too like grown-up dad movie when I was a kid. Oh, well, I had Gandhi, and oh, wow. like, it was just, just sort of fine. Well, <laughs> I, I like Gandhi a lot. I, I, I'm not saying it's it a bad movie, but like it,
0: but... It, it was also the year ET was nominated, and mm-hmm. you're just sort of like. Gandhi really thought that Gandhi would last? Like, Gandhi would Gandhi be the one to change? Yeah, well, yeah, as a move, When was the last time you saw someone quote Gandhi the movie, not Gandhi the guy? <laughs> Gandhi the guy, I'll give you, uh, people still quote. But mm. Gandhi the movie is largely just sort of like, oh, yeah,
1: did not that my best picture? It did. Weird. I mean, Over at ET, huh? People like Gandhi more than they like you know, chariots of fire. Oh. <laughs> Which won the year before, uh, yeah. or video drum, which won Best Picture the year after. Of course, it did. Uh, so uh, it, it's like, but I feel about I feel the same way about uh, the Deer Hunter. The same way you feel like when you get a wall calendar and you you finally get to your birth month, and it's just like the most it's like the shittiest picture in the calendar. I uh, know that there's got to be a, there's a, probably a German word for that feeling. Uh, <laughs> That, that feeling of disappointment when you flip the calendar yeah. page and it's a bad picture on your birthday. Here's what
0: was nominated the year I was born: it was Gandhi, which won. Hmm. Here, uh, missing, which people don't talk about very often. But I understand. All right. The other three nominees: E. T. the Extraterrestrial, Tootsie, and The Verdict.
1: All right. I don't know. That's, I think that's, I, that's I, I, I don't think uh, I would have
0: gone Gandhi with that list, but okay.
1: Tootsie and the Verdict.
0: Wow. Okay. It's a good list. <laughs> that's, a good list. That's, a, that's a good list. Who else was nominated mm-hmm. against the Deer Hunter? He had Coming Home, another mm-hmm. Vietnam I, uh-huh. movie. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, uh, a Warren Beatty supernatural, like, like, supernatural comedy, comedy yeah. which is really good. Oh. I, I like that movie a lot. Um, a Midnight Express, really dark. I haven't grim, seen, and I
1: haven't seen Midnight Express. And
0: I haven't seen uh, Paul Mazursky's An Unmarried Woman. Uh, so, so it's a like a
1: lot of heady dramas. Yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah. a lot
0: of stuff that people don't talk about very much mm. anymore. I guess Deer Hunter really is kind of mm. the film. But uh, in yeah, any case, it's a film by Michael Camino. Is it Camino or Chimino? I think it's Chimino. Michael Chimino. Um, and it is an original story about uh, three men from a small mining town who all enlist into the Vietnam War and experience something incredibly intensely traumatic together, and how they each handle the fallout. Is sad tragic and meaningful and that's kind of it it's there's a lot we're going to talk a lot about like how that story plays out but the actual like bullet points of the plot
1: is almost amazingly simple yeah a, a lot of this movie is just a slow contemplative uh, like sort of kitchen sink realist realism looks at their lives yeah and it's split into three sections there's uh the introduction The first 50 minutes of the film is devoted entirely to a wedding between uh, one of the the soldiers uh, and all of his best friends, who are all the ones who are going to go away to Vietnam. And they're all deer hunters. That's how they bonded over the years.
0: And I want to make something clear here. Mm. Whitney didn't say the first 15 minutes is dedicated to a wedding.
1: 50 minutes dedicated to a
0: wedding. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a pretty short wedding. Now I grant you that. Like that's we've all been to longer weddings than that. That's that's a that's a short wedding. However, in movie terms, that's a long fucking it's, wedding. It's
1: it's bloody interminable. And I I understand that you know they're establishing character, and we see mm-hmm. the way these characters talk to one another. It doesn't need to be fifty minutes to establish no. all of that stuff. Uh, I feel like. And, and I said this to you uh, before you watched it. I, I watched The Deer Hunter. It feels like the long-lost director's cut of a previously known classic. Yeah. It's like, I felt like, you know, the apocalypse now redux, where they just add a lot more uh, it's, footage. It's,
0: it's funny you mentioned that, because I was reading up on this movie, uh, and um, apparently the other editor, uh, this movie actually won the Academy Award for Best Editing. Mm. Uh, Do more.
1: <laughs> Editing, uh, but the the
0: other editor apparently like when they were working on the movie and they they cut the wedding scene down dramatically oh and then Michael God. Cimino said no 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 and like reedited and made the whole wedding fifty fucking minutes long. Now I, I will say this: I think the the lingering on the wedding isn't just there to be cinema verite or whatever. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's 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 key, but I do think it's overdone because what we're dealing with here. And by the way, this is a great cast in this movie. You got Robert De Niro. John Savage and Christopher Walken as the three Vietnam that's We've got the great John Cazale from uh, the Godfather movies C- and Dog C- Afternoon. Cazale.
1: Is it Cazale or yeah. pronounced Cazale? You're, you're such a terrible Italian. I don't
0: no, I <laughs> Actually, I looked it up online because I wasn't sure and I saw that it, said, it said Cazale. I've only ever heard Cazale. Okay, I'm going to call him Cazale. then. Cazale. fine. John Cazale. Uh, uh, and Meryl Streep, who was actually, this isn't her first movie, but damn near to it. Mm. She was, uh, her first Academy Award nomination, and she was dating John Ghazali at the time, and he was dying. He was, uh, he had cancer at the time, and she wanted to be closer to him, and, this and so.
1: This is one of five films that he did, and yeah. he, he made five movies, and they're, like, five of the best movies yeah. from, of the 70s. He made
0: five movies, three of them won Best Picture, and I think the other two were nominated. uh uh-huh. Holy is, shit.
1: And he's great there, amazing. He's the, amazing in all of them. It was The Godfather, The Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, mm-hmm. uh, The Conversation, and The Deer Hunter. Yeah. Those are his
0: movies. Those are, that's the, maybe the single most incredible what, run. what your resume? Anyone ever had. Like, I know James Dean made three classics, but that's only three. <laughs> Johnny he <laughs> made five. And he's, and he's a standout in all of those movies. Like, he's really amazing. But, um, he plays a guy who stays home uh, and doesn't understand what they're going through when they come back. Um. The wedding is – so it starts off with they're all working uh, at, at the mill and then uh, – the, the steel mill, not like, you know, wood. It's not Twin Peaks. Um, and then they all get drunk because it's bachelor party day. Mm. And then the guy's getting married that night. So he's getting married totally wasted. And it's all this big wedding and you get a real wonderful sense of the town – This is a small town. Everyone's going to be there. You see people, like, walking the wedding cake over to, like, the big banquet hall from, like, four blocks away. And they're trying not to drop the cake. And, like, you get a sense that, like, the entire community is together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. And I think by lingering on it for a while, not 50 minutes, but lingering on it for a while, you get a nicer sense that this isn't just a story of three people. This is a story about... You know, America itself. This is a story about uh, you know the whole civilization that they come from, and this is a story about how where they came from was a place of love and community where people looked after each other. And yeah, there was conflict, but it wasn't that but, bad. It was mostly just bickering.
1: I under I understand all that. No, and I'm just thinking. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't complain about the length if that couldn't have been done more efficiently. I agree. I, I feel like all of those things are communicated fine in. 20 minutes. I I agree. And I think there's something that, uh, uh, when
0: we've talked about this before, when you're dealing with a story about people whose lives take a sudden and horrifying turn, a traditional story structure might sometimes work against you. Mm. uh, Because if you introduce like an element of danger or the supernatural or the unknown in the first 10 minutes of a movie, it doesn't really seem like there was a normal world. And then this happened. Mm. This is the whole world of the movie is a movie in which nightmares occur. But then you look at something like psycho. Yeah. For example, which is all structured around the first half of that movie is a, a woman wants to run off with her boyfriend, but he is in financial straits and he cannot marry her until he pays off his ex wife's alimony and everything. And she gets an opportunity to steal some money from work mm. and she absconds with it. So it's a basically like a small, low level noir crime movie. Mm. So that when halfway through the movie, all of a fucking sudden, out of nowhere, she is stabbed to death in the shower. Uh-huh. It really resonates because this wasn't a horror movie before. This was a movie about morality and stuff. It was dark, but it wasn't a violent horror movie and so we've really lured you into something and the suddenness in which she is murdered feels approximately as sudden to the audience as it probably did to her oh my life got cut real short i don't know what the fuck is going on right now why is that guy wearing a wig i don't fucking know <laughs> like she's completely thrown off by this and something we can sometimes miss in a movie that, says starts in Vietnam, is the idea that these characters had a life before Vietnam. And this wartime experience, mm-hmm. to cite just one example, is jarring and strange. Yeah. Well, so well, I think it, the Deer Hunter is trying to do that, but it goes
1: so it far go, overboard. It goes, very, it goes far too far overboard. Yeah. And uh, I, I think what, what really hammers it home is the, the, the scenes of the socialization are really nice. And, has, you know, the way mm-hmm. they take care of each other when they're drunk. Camino has a great eye the, for
0: detail. Yeah, for
1: character detail, great eye. Undeniable. Yeah, and and I think he does have this really great uh, sense of realism, where he's just trying to have people talk over each other, and he lets the camera sort of wander very naturally through these very uh, unglamorous environments. Uh, He's, despite being known for shooting these gigantic epics, he's actually a very intimate filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's a pretty hard smash cut to them being in Vietnam, and everything just goes bad immediately. And The highlight of the rather extended Vietnam sequence is actually two. One, and the plot point, is they're captured by the VCs, and they are forced to play Russian roulette for money. They hold, like, guns to their temples, and they actually get to watch some of their their compatriots uh, die. And it's just completely harrowing. They barely escape. At the end of this, they sort of reconnoiter at a hospital, and Christopher Walken has one of the most glorious moments of his career where Mm. he breaks down. He's finally escaped all of this. He's safe. He's in the hospital. Somebody approaches him and just asks him a simple question. And he can't speak. He, he just can't connect to another person. Weeps, it's yeah. a really
0: incredible bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, Walking won an Academy Award for this performance. And rightful, it's easy to see why.
1: Rightfully so. This is the best performance I've ever seen from Christopher walsh Which is him. saying something. He's an mm. amazing actor. Mm. But
0: this is this is one of those ones where you he's often plays someone who's haunted. He often plays someone who has is like experiencing some form of mental turmoil or strife or is mm-hmm. maybe coming from a darker place, but it's rare
1: you get to see that wonderful contrast. Yeah. I, I think he, he eventually uh, gained a reputation for playing heavies really well, which he does. He yeah, plays heavies very night. well. Um, maybe the sort of transition between those two modes was The Dead Zone, where he got to play uh, sort of the supernatural, the character with the supernatural power. Yeah, which I
0: think is his other greatest performance. Yeah, that's an amazing role. The Dead Zone is a very good film. I love that movie yeah. so much. Um,
1: but, um, yeah, so
0: that's the but middle the, section. Yeah, that's is the, the middle the, section. The Vietnam and and then there's the
1: third section, which is the coming home section. Yeah, And that's the best part of the movie. Uh, mm. Because we get to see how unable those characters are to Uh, re-enter society, how difficult it is for them to start to relate to people again and how meaningless everything seems now. Um, The Robert De Niro character, ostensibly the protagonist is the one who seems to have survived the best. He was the one who was able to keep, I'm not going to say keep clear headed and be a good soldier throughout Mm -hmm. Vietnam, but the one who was able to face this with enough wrath that it was able to sort of scratch him a little less deeply. Yeah. Uh, So he's the one who... He's wearing his uniform, but you can tell he's really uncomfortable in it with all the medals on Mm -hmm. it. He knows that there's, like, a big party
0: for him when he's coming home, and he intentionally goes to a motel and skips it because he can't handle it. Like, he's still... Dealing with all of his bullshit. Yeah. And and, and, uh, and that's a bad way to put it. But like he's dealing well, with all get... of the trauma that he had. But he's getting by more healthily. Yeah. In some respects. He, he Whereas a, we, John Savage we, is in a veterans hospital. And yeah, Christopher Walken is actually missing. Yeah. Uh, John, act.
1: John Savage is. Uh, and we, we visit him in the hospital. And uh, in a really wonderful moment. He open. He's He's been very badly injured. I won't say. But there's a wonderful scene where he opens a drawer. Uh, with a bunch of gifts he's received for for having served in the army, and yeah. he's just sort of like flipping through all these gifts. I don't want to say what it is, but it's just saying uh, this. All of this is meaningless. Like. I don't care about any of this. Like yeah, they're they're giving me all this stuff. I don't. Why are yeah. they giving me this? Like
0: Robert De Niro says, "Hey, do you want to?" Because he's at mm. like a uh, like a recovery uh, mm. center and he's uh, you know mm. seeking care for his body and his mind. And Robert De Niro's like, "Hey, you want to come home?" And he's like, "No, this is good for me. I need a place where like people don't expect anything of mm. me. I need a place where I can be like taken care of because I was hit really really hard by what we went through." Mm. And he actually is clear headed enough to just say it like that. Yeah, basically. And you just and Robert De Niro's kind of just got to respect it but uh, Christopher Walken is still missing and that leads to a harrowing uh, uh, climax the middle section I think is what people focus on the most Uh in the deer hunter because the wedding is boring and the last act is uh, really sad and full of spoilers it's Um, sad
1: and full of spoilers but it's where the soul of the movie is I think it's the the best part of the movie I I don't disagree but
0: I think the middle Mm. part is what gets a lot of focus so I want to focus on it for a minute Mm. the scenes in Vietnam are actually weirdly insular. Mm. Like, this isn't like a big apocalypse now platoon Vietnam story where we're really just digging deep into everything that they did in Vietnam. It's actually very limited mm. in its scope of what it shows. We see Robert De Niro uh with a flamethrower and a big helicopter attack, and it's really intense. And we just sort of cut to it and we realize that Robert De Niro has already seen some shit. Mm. Then De Niro. Walken and Savage, who actually only just happened to reconvene. They weren't in like the same unit together. They're all captured, and they're POWs, and they are forced at gunpoint for the purpose of gambling to play Russian roulette with each other, mm. which if you don't know what it is, Deer Hunter was the thing that made this public knowledge. I don't even know if it was really a thing before yeah. this, but the movie made it such a heightened intense suspenseful thing that now it's kind of a commonplace we probably don't even have to explain it but the idea is you take a revolver you know one of those ones where you spin the the bullet chamber you put one bullet in there you spin it at random you close it at random and Mm. you put it to your head and you take your chances you got a one in six chance that Mm. you're you're going to die it's fucking horrifying and not and and, they, and bad, just yeah. fucking bad, obviously. I just want to make that abundantly clear because yeah, apparently the, people dying this way like skyrocketed after the deer hunter like came
1: out. Well, uh, well the baffling thing about the deer hunter is it, it is a, a sad, tragic, downbeat, quiet movie. Yeah, it, it's really slow to get started. The The Vietnam stuff is really intense, but it's really horrifying. It's yeah. not like. It's not like a, you know, Rambo 2. There's like one of shot of De Niro, De Niro yeah. with a
0: flamethrower that's
1: almost Rambo in terms of how macho it is, but you can yeah. tell this yeah. is horrifying too. Like, yeah, I can see how someone could look at something like really downbeat and strange like Apocalypse Now and mistake it for something exciting because there's you know, the Rite of the Valkyries and mm-hmm. the Napalm. It's got a fable-like Duvall, quality to yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know? so it, yeah, it feels like something epic is happening, even though what's happening is actually about sort of the erosion of the soul, like it smells like victory. That's not a up... An uplifting speech. No, that's actually a horrifying yeah. thing to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, but how people could walk away from The Deer Hunter and say, wow, Vietnam sure was fun, is a little baffling to me. I,
0: I got, when I mentioned on Twitter that I was watching this movie for the first time, and I mentioned it because people on Twitter have often asked me, what's mm. a big movie you haven't seen? I would say The Deer Hunter. I'm like, hey, I'm finally watching it. Mm. Got a lot of responses of, uh, hey, you might need a hug afterwards or something, okay, which yeah. is like, yeah, that that turned out to be more or less on the ball mm. I wasn't that affected by it but it was really good and I was sad
1: I mean the, the ending is pretty pretty horrible Oh oh it's yeah. it's
0: dreary and sad and, and 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 horrible but like I wasn't like mm. curled up in a fetal position I I, I handled it a bit okay I can be very emotionally affected by movies but I got through the deer hunter okay mm. With, that's no slight to the deer hunter I was having a good mental health day mm. um but there were also a, a fair number of people who were just like yeah mm. I remember there was a scene in the movie Jarhead where uh, <laughs> uh, it's a Sam Mendes film. It's about the little, little uh, first, underrated, but, yeah, A yeah. little underrated, but well, not great. Uh, it, yeah, it, uh. It's worth watching. Uh, but it starts Jake Gyllenhaal as a guy who enlists uh, in, I think, the Army or the Marines. And uh, he uh, is going to go to war in the first uh, Iraq conflict uh, in the early 90s. And he's trained to kill and then not allowed to. And it's yeah. all about that sort of- sort of stifling of testosterone and what that does to your mind and there's a part in the movie where a guy comes in and it's like hey my my wife just sent me my favorite movie it's the deer hunter and he's got like a two-disc vhs because no, it's two, such a two, long two movie tape
1: VHS, Sorry,
0: yeah. I, I just say that, that? two tape vhs back when that was a thing and he sends it but he's just like yeah we're gonna watch the deer hunter and now that i've seen the deer hunter i'm like You've seen the deer hunter and you're going, yeah, let's watch this 50 minute wedding sequence and then get really sad. <laughs> like, what are we doing? But he puts it in and of course it ends up going horrible whatever. But I remember just seeing all those like tough guys going, yeah. So in my head, I thought the deer hunter was a bit more like macho than this, but mm-hmm. it's actually very subversive about that kind of macho instinct. Yeah. And when we, the, the thing that we see in Vietnam, we see that one quick battle sequence and then it's all Russian roulette. Mm. They're they're trapped. They're being, like, held in, like, you know, underneath, like, a, a, a uh in, in the river. They're yeah. being
1: held in a, a, a submerged cage. Yeah,
0: and, it, and apparently it was actually really fucked up, and there were, like, rats and snakes. There's a line in the movie where John Savage is trapped, like, almost underwater in a cage. And he says, there are rats in here, Michael! Robert De Niro is playing a guy named Michael, hmm. but apparently he was saying that to Michael Cimino. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because there were actually rats in
0: there. <laughs> which is pretty fucked up. Um... But uh, in any case, they're just picking guys out from the river and just forcing them to do this for, for money and thrills. And it's so fucked up and it's so intense. And you can just see how, like, everyone is responding to the idea. We're, cut, we're outnumbered. What's we're, It's hopeless. What do we do? And that level of intensity is really amazing. And even though that that really wasn't a thing that happened, like, there's no actual evidence that the, you know, the Vietnamese ever did that. For a minute, I'm like, okay, this is obviously an extreme, isolated thing, but then the rest of everything they show in Vietnam is nothing but Russian roulette. It was a fad Uh at the time, and it ends up just feeling, like, so inaccurate to what was actually going on. Apparently Mm -hmm. it was, and they were actually, like... Protests like at the Academy Awards Gah. that we're kind of only showing the Vietnamese people in this one weird light that has nothing to do with anything that actually even happened, mm. and a lot of people were, were genuinely upset at this movie. For listen, we, we, like the Vietnam War was was rough enough, and there are already enough there's already enough propaganda about it. Do we really need to just only portray this mm. entire culture as obsessed with Russian roulette Ugh. because? Ultimately, that's the way it comes across in the movie. Like, it's, it's really one-sided. Not that it needed to be multifaceted, but they're kind of going out of their way not to show any nuance whatsoever to no. anything going on over there. And I get that it's trying to only talk about how it was traumatizing, but I do believe that movies have a little bit more responsibility than that. So I don't care for the way the Vietnam War is handled. Well, I would well, actually I, argue in the end that this is a bad Vietnam War movie, hmm. but a
1: great movie about trauma. It is a great movie about trauma. It's a great movie. Well, I think it's a great movie about how a lot of Americans were reacting to Vietnam more Mm -hmm. than the actual facts of Vietnam. Uh, This was made in '78. I think a lot of just the 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 lies and the deceit that was going into that war still was like still being aired out. You Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at that time, so it, it was we didn't have a lot of context yet. Well, and we're some talking, people had
0: context and they were protesting okay. yeah, at the time. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's my point is the information was out there, and so the, this movie okay, kind of solidified yeah, some, fair, of the, some of the
1: negativity. Uh, but uh, we're, we're trying to sort of contest with uh, how how I don't want to say how badly we felt about it, just how how badly bungled the uh, the nation sort of just fucked up this war and the, that whole region and just mm-hmm. how, just everything about the Vietnam yeah. War and how yeah. we were reacting to it. I think it's trying to grab for something a little bit more immediate, what we were feeling at the
0: time. Yeah, it's all and, emotion. Uh, and, it's a great movie about emotions, uh, not a great movie and, about the context, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also not necessarily the greatest film about reintegration. Uh, there's... Uh, a really wonderful film that also won Best Picture back in the nineteen forties, called "The Best Years of Our Lives."
0: Yeah, that's a great. Uh, which, example is all,
1: else, yeah. which is all, which uh, is also a pretty long film, but it's all about reintegration mm-hmm. and it's all about how trauma kind of robs you of just any sort of semblance of humanity and how it can uh, you know wound your body, but you can still have a healthy mind or vice versa. There's yeah. two two protagonists, one uh, who lost his hands and one who just sort of lost his will to live. And how and sort of their parallel arcs and how one is sort of on the upswing and one is on the downswing. Beautiful uh, yeah, movie. It's, it's a great double it's, feature idea. It's a, idea with it's this, a by really the way. really yeah. wonderful film. And yeah. uh, it's and more hopeful we, than that. And then we had another film about reintegration in the two thousands called The Hurt Locker, which mm-hmm. is about coming back from the Middle East and, and all of the conflagrations that America was uh, really just fucking up back at that time. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in The Hurt Locker, uh, which also really nail, re, you know, nails sort of the return from war uh, idea, is. When the Jeremy Renner character, the protagonist, is sent, uh, he's back Mm. from the war, he's back in just sort of suburban life, and his wife says, "Uh, We're going grocery shopping, go into the cereal aisle and pick out a box of cereal. And he walks into the the aisle of cereal and he sees that wall. There's like, you know, dozens upon dozens of choices. (laughs) And he just sort of stands and looks at it, and you just sense. The sucking futility of American life Mm. in that scene of him sitting in front of all these consumer products that mean nothing to him.
0: Well, and actually this movie was nominated opposite Coming Home, which I actually have never seen, or at least not all the way through. And that's also a film about Vietnam veterans Mm. coming Coming home. Home. And that won the the Academy Awards Best Actor and Actress. Mm, Um, So that was a big deal at the time. It was obviously something that people were really exploring yeah and cinema and this was of course one year before apocalypse now came out which had a very different view of world war, of, of world war II. World war vietnam, war. vietnam war wow we gotta stop recording this late <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know we were watching cinema wrestle with how to handle the vietnam war mm. Is really quite fascinating the the i found out the academy award for best picture that year was handed out by john wayne who, oh, made his own, who made his own Vietnam War movie called The Green Beret, which famously treated Vietnam like any World War II movie where like, yeah, we're going to go guys in there. The will just win. Yeah. And yeah. the movie was not well received because mm. that was a very different conflict. And it was not seen as, as morally cut and dry. And, yeah, so I imagine that was an awkward moment. Mm. Um in any case, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by this movie. Uh, there's a lot of things that you find out about the production. I heard a story, which I really hope is apocryphal, that uh, there's a scene later on in which, um, in like the third part of the movie, where John Cazale is uh, playing around. He has his own pistol, and he treats it like just any ornament That he's got, and Robert De Niro... They're they're hunters. Guns are things they
1: handle frequently. But, you
0: know, a handgun is not what you do on a hunt. He just sort of has it because it makes him feel big. And Robert De Niro, uh, in order to show him, like, you know, you're, you're being irresponsible with this. Guns have consequences, and violence is terrible. Sort of does an impromptu Russian roulette experience with him. And the story goes, and I hope this isn't true, that Robert De Niro insisted on putting a real bullet in that chamber. God, I hope that's not true. Mm. That would be absolutely mind-bogglingly irresponsible. Like, holy shit. Michael Jamino is, I mean, he, he's no longer with us, and I'm actually even not 100% sure we're using the right pronouns, because stories have been told that he he may have been a pre-op transsexual, mm. but that's never been confirmed to the best of my knowledge, and I believe it never changed his name. Mm. Um But uh, so I don't know the details of that. And I even looked it up before we did this just to make sure. So I'm just going off of the information that I've got. Um, But he was a filmmaker who kind of killed this whole era of directors having extreme control over big budget artsy projects Mm. that ended up making a lot of money. Because
1: after uh, they did The Deer Hunter, they made Heaven's Gate. And Heaven's Gate, to this day, yeah. has a reputation as being one of the biggest fiascos of all time.
0: Yeah, it is a giant, incredibly long saga of Americana that went massively over budget and over schedule and then nobody saw it and apparently people didn't like it at the time. So it's had some critical reevaluation since, but... It was a fiasco.
1: Some critical re- reevaluation. Yeah. It still has its bad reputation. Yeah, it's, not, it's not like
0: everyone agrees that it's good now, like It's mm. a Wonderful Life, which got largely, you know, ignored yeah. when it came. It was nominated for some Oscars, didn't win any. It was, like, mm. not a big deal. Heaven's Gate is just legendarily, and because the the Hollywood, in all of its wisdom... Uh, learns the simplest, easiest lessons from everything. What they learn from *Heaven's Gate* is, oh, let's not give directors any more money anymore for passion projects. Mm-hmm. And so we stopped having big movies like well, *The Deer Hunter*, *Heaven's Gate*, *The well, Godfather*—big,
1: you know. sensitive movies from yeah. auteurs. Uh yeah. and, and this was the in 90- the studio system. Yeah, this was the 1980s. Star Wars had already come out, so that's where cinema started to head. And we weren't going to give yeah big passion projects to important artists. Yeah. Uh, Coppola is on record for saying that uh, the future of cinema was going to be very exciting because he saw advances in special effects technology. He saw what was happening with uh, just what could be filmed, what could be faked. He saw yeah. what was happening with Star Wars. And he said, we're going to come to a point where technology is going to be so advanced that no matter what the artist is, they can film whatever they want. Mm-hmm. They can cast whatever actors they want. They could imagine actors and they can just imagine whatever scenario they want and we can fake everything. And that's not, you know, decrying realism. That's just sort of appreciating
0: a blank canvas. Yeah, exactly.
1: A a passionate cry for the purity of an artist's vision. Yeah. And if you can dream it, you can put it on camera. Years later, when he was making films like Tetro, you know, he kind of had to go back and start just doing. Little indie projects because Coppola couldn't get money. Yeah, well, he Coppola made it, couldn't get. Well, money. his movies stopped making money. That's I do true. get it. <laughs> yeah, one, one from the heart. I think was sort of the the, the tipping uh, point.
0: Another giant passion project that cost from, a lot of money from the early eighties. About yeah, the same time. Yeah, it's, it was the second uh, nail in the coffin.
1: I think. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, you know, Heaven's Gate. One from the heart kind of killed it all. Yeah, uh,
0: that's why we didn't get Gangs but, of New York in the early eighties. That kind of thing. Oh, that would have been interesting.
1: That's what he wanted. He uh, yeah. wanted it with Robert De
0: Niro and um, I
1: forget who else he wanted it.
0: But yeah, it was a, something was
1: on the back burner for forever. But of course, he couldn't came get him it made. came out in 2005 and it feels like it's been on the back burner for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, it's like a to- so overcooked, that movie. Uh, but um, Coppola, I, I think years later, started to comment saying, yes, I, I did say that about special effects. I thought it was going to be really exciting, but I didn't mean like that. He didn't want it to just be used for like fantasy and pop entertainment yeah he thought it was going to be used for the kinds of movies he was used to making like imagine the Godfather in completely completely CGI essentially mm-hmm. like but with you know Andy circus level motion capture realism mm-hmm like, that's, maybe that, that's, maybe that's just,
0: not the best example because you could do that on a set anyway. But, like, yeah, you could do anything at this Point. Yeah, point. You could we, recreate any time period. You could, yeah, mm, anything
1: was possible. That, that's what Coppola was thinking about <clears throat> yeah. when he said special effects are going to be really exciting. But instead we went the fantasy route. Yeah. And now when we talk about special effects blockbusters, we're talking about fantasy films. General we're not, we're not talking about, you know, sophisticated adult dramas like the Deer Hunter yeah. that were made with special effects. Yeah. In fact, that very idea, in fact, seems kind of antithetical, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, Can you imagine an animated The Deer Hunter? It seems kind of absurd, right? No, no. Only in America. Only in America. In
0: in Europe, you can get that made. I saw a really intense uh, um, uh, war movie last year called Funan. That was animated. Uh, okay, uh, Japan yeah, yeah. has been making animated dramas this whole time, basically. But in America, yeah, that's can, not can, a thing. Can
1: a film yeah. ma- win an American Academy Award, like an, yeah. an animated film that told the same story as the Deer Hunter? Probably not. But yeah. you know, who's to say? Someone should just fucking
0: try, shouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, another thing the Deer Hunter did that completely changed a big facet of Hollywood, and I don't think anyone could have predicted this, was it changed the way Oscar campaigning worked. The Deer Hunter had mixed test reviews and they were concerned that word of mouth would really, really hurt it. So what they decided to do was they decided to, instead of like building word of mouth and then getting like a bunch of Oscar nominations, they decided to get a bunch of Oscar nominations and then work with word of mouth. So what they did was they had, they opened it for like a week in December for like just test screenings with Hollywood or whatever like that, and then roll out the big release after it was nominated for Academy Award. So they avoided mm. the controversy and they just last-minuteed that thing in order to get it under the guise and make it a zeitgeist, which is something that a lot of movies have tried to do since. Sometimes do some effect, sometimes not at all. Mm. I think the last movie I can think of that sort of just came out like under the wire, like last part of the year and nobody was talking about it and then it had like just enough of a zeitgeist for like six weeks I was able to do, get a bunch of Academy Awards mm. was Million Dollar Baby.
1: Okay. I think that yeah. was the last
0: one that successfully did that but I've seen a lot of ones that tried mm. and like just sort of snuck under a wire and got a bunch of nominations. Um, so that was <sighs> who the hell knew? Mm. Um, again, I'm trying to think of other like influences that obviously obviously Meryl Streep got bigger and bigger and bigger after this. She won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress the year after this for Kramer versus Kramer which is nothing to do with Seinfeld. Um. <laughs> oh my god! I am not the first person to make that joke. I thought you, you were just gonna roll your eyes, and they're
1: gonna get you. I'm thinking about you know the deer hunter and Kramer versus Kramer, and uh, 80 yeah. was, was it ordinary people? Was it 1980? Uh, I, think it, I think I think yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's of Fire in 81, yeah, uh, Donnie we just yeah. talked about. Uh, this this was this a uh, period. I, I wanted to say this was a period when serious dramas were one best picture. Uh, they but still I, do. They still do, and I, I find it really curious that the Academy and like ABC and the Academy Award, like the telecast, is really trying to bend over backwards, and they're changing Academy rules to. Get like a more pop audience involved in these things. Yeah,
0: like the one they th- the threatened yeah. to have a most popular picture award, oh, which God, is a what,
1: what terrible. A, it's like the worst possible idea. But it's so
0: condescending.
1: Yeah, especially, uh, you're since-
0: good, but you're not popular, and you're yeah. popular, but you're not good. Like,
1: what is that award? <laughs> <laughs> that just that just ruins both awards. Yeah, basically, yeah. if you try that. And, and it was especially suspect because all the biggest movies that the year they suggested that were all big Disney-owned releases. Uh-huh. I mean, it was Marvel, Star Wars, and Disney mm. animated films. And some of them and were
0: nominated for Best Picture anyway. Black Panther was nominated for Best Picture that year. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and it won a bunch, actually. It didn't win Best Picture, but and, it won like uh,
1: four, three, four, you know. Some way. But the Academy Awards is telecast on ABC, which is also owned by Disney. So uh-huh. it was essentially Disney once again patting themselves on the Disney back.
0: Disney wants a free Academy Award yeah. every year, pretty exactly. much. Exactly. Yeah,
1: Stu- stupid, stupid idea. Yeah. Uh, I-, I kind of wish I was around in this era when films like The Deer Hunter and films like Kramer vs. Kramer were not just the talked about Oscar bait movies, but were the hits. Yeah. Uh, the hits changed, but the Academy didn't. And I think that's what yeah. people are kind of complaining about. Yeah. The movies that people are like, oh,
0: why are we celebrating these kinds of movies? Why don't we celebrate mm. the big hits? Those you, they used Those to, used be, to the be the hits. The, the Godfather hits. was one of the biggest movies of all time when it came out. Just because you're not seeing them doesn't mean yeah. the movies are
1: any better than I think what's happened
0: is a sort of collective, um, almost de-evolution of the Hollywood system where the biggest movies are the ones that appeal to the youngest people. And as a result, those aren't necessarily very mature films, are there? Mm. Now there are a lot of exceptions to that. There's a lot of very mature films that appeal to all audiences, a lot of very mature films that are very fun and popular and action packed, etc. We also all know that that's not their necessarily their race on Detra, is there? Mm. They're trying to be massively popular. They're trying to cater to everybody. They're not necessarily challenging. And they're not necessarily trying to tell stories about mature, rich lives. Mm. Not that those are inherently better, but the emphasis of the studio system shifted Mm. to the point where it seems like movies that get nominated for and win the most Oscars either have to come in more independently Mm. or they have to get made specifically to win Academy Awards. Otherwise, there's no real market for them. We have to see this. It's not ready for an Academy Award. And a lot of movies benefit from that. And a lot of movies wouldn't get made without it. So I'm glad that they are. Mm. But the whole system shifted and the Academy Awards kind of stayed the same. We keep celebrating the same stuff. It's not our fault you changed your attitude about it. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: yeah, sometimes we we celebrate good movies. Sometimes we celebrate shitty movies. Green Book. But the Academy has stayed relatively consistent in the kinds of movies that it celebrates. Like, I'm trying to think, of what was nominated, like, the year Ordinary People came out? I'm trying to, like... The best Picture nominees. 1981. Yeah. I mean. um, let's see. Awards here. Uh, we're in third, <laughs> 53rd Academy Awards. <laughs> okay. It was up against... Here, these are the, these just, are the we're Best Picture nominees go, we're just 1980. We're going to go bush, bush, bush for a little yeah. while. That doesn't mean reading. I, I, I don't want to read silently, but I also mm. don't want to just tell you everything I'm reading because it's boring. Uh, let's see. Best Picture in 1980. The nominees were Ordinary People, which won. Mm. Uh, Robert Redford, uh, uh, one best director. Uh, Coal miner's daughter. Oh, okay. Okay. Big big biopic. Another big biopic. The Elephant Man. Mm. Another big biopic.
1: Good uh, movies. <laughs> uh, I, sort of... I heard a wonderful joke from a critic at the time. Yeah. Where uh, what they said? Whatever happened to the Elephant Man? He made that one movie and then he just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the Elephant Man himself was the uh, kind it. of.
0: Uh, let's see, Raging Bull was nominated that year. Oh, so okay, holy yeah. shit! And uh, then Tess, which was an adaptation of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. So mm. those are all very mature
1: films. Yeah. Overall. Well, it, it's it's really rare that sort of the big blockbuster got nominated because mm-hmm. uh, the whole idea about the Academy Awards and and I, this does all of this conversation does connect to the Deer Hunter. Yeah. Uh, is they're supposed to be holding themselves to very high standards and they're supposed to be ignoring the idea of popularity and going for what is just the best film ostensibly on paper. Uh-huh. I know, I know the politics. Well, I'm you also know why they began idea. because they yeah. began, the, the Academy Awards. I
0: think the Academy Awards are a bit like America. We, where we professed ideals, but we didn't actually have any until later. <laughs> like, like, Oh, every person is supposed to be created equal. Mm. Which a- means we're going to systemically change everything We're not going to do that for many mm. years
1: Fucking hell When did women get the vote? Oh right, the 1920s Yeah, like like there's a lot yeah.
0: <laughs> That we're still catching up on From the ideals that we're supposed to set forth So the Academy Awards were supposed to be For the greatest achievements chosen by our peers But they were mostly invented so that studios could give awards to their stars so that they felt sort of artistically gratified in a system that chewed them up and spit them out. Just like we talked about with Olivia de Havilland. So they're kind of both. They are an empty popularity contest, but people do take them seriously. And because they take them seriously, other people want to take them seriously, too. And we want them to mean something. And every once in a while, it seems like they're really trying to actively celebrate the most interesting art that was made at the time. And then every once in a while, they just celebrate some bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> just some generic pablum that, was, that makes people feel good, but isn't necessarily even remotely the most interesting thing nominated.
1: I was looking forward to, like, what are some other, like... Uh... Like big hits that came out, and the next year was 1981. That was the year uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way Raiders of the Lost Ark is winning Best Picture.
0: No, but it was a bit of a, it was a hell of a coup to be nominated yeah, for I, like a generic act, not generic, but you know, like a, an action movie yeah, that doesn't have high aspirations to thematic yeah. grandeur.
1: You yeah, know? yeah, just just a, a really amazingly well done action movie. Yeah. And the following year, Spielberg again, E.T. Yep, was 82. Well, Spielberg,
0: I think Spielberg had already been nominated for Jaws and I think Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. So. Like people were just people were willing to give Spielberg nominations. Like yeah. we didn't win anything until the. Yeah, 90s. looking
1: ahead, I'm getting like a Soldier's Story, Places in the Heart, Color Purple, because mm. of the Spider Woman, Preeti's Honor.
0: I'm just gonna skip ahead to the next ones. Okay, Witness was nominated for Best Picture in 1985. That was a big, you know, crime thriller. Yeah, uh, great movie by the way. Uh, then we skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead. Fiddle attraction. Fatal Attraction, yep, uh, erotic is, yeah. thriller. That's that's uh, that's a classic. Uh, skipping ahead, skipping ahead, uh, <laughs> Field of Dreams, kind of. It's good. a feel good sports movie, but it's also very yeah. artsy. Uh, skipping ahead, Ghost, there Ghost, very uh, a fantasy supernatural romance that is very good. I think oh, it's, yeah. e- it's easy to make fun of Ghosts, because it has like some of those iconic scenes that are easy to like mm. parody on The Simpsons or whatever, but it's a very well-made
1: film. Mm. Uh, uh, the, then
0: we had Beauty and the Beast and The Silence of the Lambs the year after that. Uh, those Be- were, Beauty those and were, the
1: Beast versus Silence of the Lambs. That was a
0: weird year, right? The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, uh, let's see. Then uh, we go ahead. We had The Fugitive nominated in 1993,
1: mm. opposite Schindler's List, so it was a weird yeah. year. And then '94 really interesting year, because we yeah. had four weddings and a funeral. Uh, you know, delightful British romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, you yep. know, big, important indie film. Uh, quiz Show uh, was maybe the most Oscar-y film of the the bunch. Uh, conventionally. Yeah. So really
0: good, though. People don't talk about it enough. It's very well made. Yeah.
1: The Shawshank Redemption uh, canonized by bros the world over. I don't know if that's sticks. And true. then the big winner was, like, this big right-wing polemic called Forrest Gump, directed yeah. by Robert Zemeckis.
0: Yeah, it's weird. Um let's see we got Apollo 13, Babe and Braveheart the year after that those were kind of big movies. Yeah. Uh Jerry Maguire the year so it starts getting a little bit more blockbustery. Titanic. Yeah. Coming up in well, the, and in the again, future, but
1: we're now we're in the '90s, and that was when yeah. there was this big rise of indie cinema. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think like lot, really
0: separated yeah, studio stuff and indie stuff.
1: Yeah, th- things were really separated. and I think audiences had much more eclectic taste as a result. So you know, it was a time when a lot of these little indie dramas could also be gigantic hits and also be awards darling. Yeah. So the <laughs> '90s were a little bit of an exception so, as well. So I guess
0: our point basically is that the Deer Hunter was, and indeed the the filmography of Michael Cimino, which you know he worked after Heaven's Gate, but not on not major films most people would recognize or remember. Um, this is an interesting crossroads in cinema. This like late 70s, early 80s period where this these kinds of really ambitious uh, uh, dramas that were made to be intense, that were made to be appreciated by genuinely mature audiences. Not just my audiences who happened to be old enough to get into the theater, but people who are actually like, I want to see a three hour movie about trauma. Here you go, like <laughs> that that's that's a different audience than to go to see a lot of the Transformers films. let's be fair um it's an interesting era. I think the Deer Hunter is very much emblematic of it in that um they're kind of bending reality to meet their art, yeah. where the Vietnam War is not accurately portrayed but in any meaningful way, but. It is portrayed in such a way that they are trying to justify the emotional story they're telling about people who have been traumatized and need to reintegrate. And I think there's an argument to be made that perhaps if they had been realistic, it would have seemed like just any other war movie. And that by making it about something weird and intense that people weren't familiar with, it creates a scene that feels almost, well, not almost, but noticeably uh uh, traumatic Mm. to the audience it's just as jarring to us after that long wedding to get dumped into this giant russian roulette sequence so that we can understand better what the characters are going through but there are also consequences to that creative choice aren't there so Mm. again i would argue that the deer hunter not a great vietnam war movie but a really great movie about post-traumatic stress and really amazing performances, yeah, right. in particular from uh, uh, Christopher Walken, uh, De Niro, and Streep. Um, and Gazelle, too, but he's just yeah, think, not in it that much. It's, it's, yeah.
1: But it does require a lot of patience. It's so, and, long. Uh, it, it's, it's it's, so fucking It's long. pretty badly paced. Uh, it's, it's it's really back-loaded.
0: I think once you get past the wedding, yeah. the pacing's actually pretty good, but the wedding, it just... Yeah, it's front-loaded. Yeah. It's just imbalanced, Yeah. Um, But I'm glad I saw it finally. It it didn't, like, quite live up to, like, the Jarhead hype. Like, oh my god, we're gonna watch Deer Hunter! (laughs) But I am glad I finally saw this film. I understand, like, its place Mm -hmm. in the cinematic pantheon. And um, thank you everyone who voted for it. Uh, Next time, on the Critically Acclaimed streaming channel, we are going back to HBO Max. We're gonna look at some comedies. Haven't looked at a comedy in a while.
1: And like, uh, can we not talking about war, Trump. Yeah, anymore? we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna
0: scale way back. And actually, I'm surprised the movie that oftentimes the movie that will win a poll is maybe like the big one. The Deer Hunter was big. Hmm. This time, the winner was I Married a Witch, starring Veronica Lake. About a about a witch who is, of course, she's she's uh, uh, killed. An and, actual, uh, witch, yeah. actual witch, actual witch, killed at the stake, and then uh, she she curses. The line of the man who killed him, and then later on she is resurrected and falls for one of his ancestors.
1: Hmm.
0: Apparently it's, I, I hear it's really great. I've, it's one of the ones I've never seen, so I'm looking forward to finally seeing this, this movie. Uh, and uh, we'll be watching that. That is available on HBO Max, and uh, you can watch it. And maybe you'll enjoy We'll find out next week, won't <laughs> we? I've never seen it. So I've never, never seen it either, so it. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's nice to see something. That, I hope it's as good as it sounds. Uh, yeah. Next up next uh, week, we'll also be reviewing new releases like Black is King, the new Beyoncé film, uh, which directed by Beyoncé. Uh, she Dies Tomorrow and Summerland, uh, possibly amongst <laughs> others. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you want to uh, send us an email about anything we talked about on this podcast... Uh, you can email us letters at critically acclaimed.net. We may read your email on a future episode of our podcast. We've got mail. Uh, let's see what we've got here. We're also on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Biani I'm at Whitney Seibel. If you want more critically acclaimed, you can head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network you can vote for future uh uh, installments of the critically acclaimed streaming club you can vote for future episodes of cancelled too soon and you can get a ton of bonus content as well including not on disney plus where we talk about movies that should be on disney plus but are not where we have only the best where we're talking about every film ever nominated for best picture we've got plenty of time before we get to the deer hunter we're just closing out the 1930s right now got a new episode we hopefully record this week Um, That's a very labor-intensive one right now because we're in this area where there were 10 nominees, so it's all right. Let's see what we got. We got all our yesterdays. We're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek. We're about to resume uh, what may be the last few episodes of our Firefly show. Uh, And uh, we got commentary tracks. We just recorded a commentary track for the original The Evil Dead, uh, which is currently on Netflix. If you want to sync it up yourself or you can listen to it as a podcast, Uh, that is available exclusively on our Patreon as well. So patreon.com slash... Critically Clean that work. Whitney, am I forgetting anything? You got it all, baby. <laughs> thank you. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And never forget, everyone's a critic.
1: I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what?